Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1, as we will read verses 5 through 8. We'll actually read verses 2 through 8, but for, for context, but we will be focusing on verses 5 through 8 this morning. James can be found on page 1,288 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, we turn to your word. We pray that we would put all else out of our minds in reverence and respect to what this is. It is your word, your authoritative, perfect word for our lives. This is the bread of life as it reveals and is, in fact, our dear Savior's word to us. This we know is how we are nourished. This we know is how faith is strengthened. This we know is how we stand and persevere in a steadfast faith. This is how we gain wisdom. And in all these things we see you give to us. You bless us. And yet we pray here and now we would turn our attention to you and our motivation would be your glory. Our motivation would be to praise and honor your name for what we desire is to see you. What we desire is to have your character revealed, and by us gazing upon you through your word, have our lives changed, be those that are even better, even those more in tune to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We will reread verses 5 through 8, our text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I wonder if have you ever heard the expression of finding yourself? Someone might say, I've really found myself this past year. Someone might say, I found myself in this job. I've come to a good place for myself. Now I really understand who I am. Now I really really accept who I am. Now, it isn't a problem if you mean by finding yourself that you've come to a place of perhaps greater knowledge of who you are, perhaps you have gained a greater confidence or a greater peace, something like that. Well, that isn't a problem, but there, there is a danger to an expression that the way the world uses it of finding yourself. That you search within and and you find within all that you need or or you search within and kind of in tune with what the world world believes and teaches. You just need to accept who you are. And if you find yourself and accept who you are, that'll be good. Your life will be blessed. It's, It's better to be stable, looking in, understanding who you are, and accept it. 
Well, I would argue that God's word never points us to that type of finding yourself. In fact, God's word is concerned less with us finding ourselves in that way and rather finding something else. Rather being able to look into ourselves and see, hey, I'm not all I should be. Hey, I look into myself and see that I lack. That's what James is saying here. If you lack, he says. If you look into yourself, do that introspection, which is good. Understand who you are. That's not a problem. But don't find then this, who I am, is all I need to be. And I need to accept that. And then I'll be, I'll be set. I'll be set for the trials of life. I'll be set to live well. No. You see, we are sinful. We are weak. We don't need to find ourselves. We need to find Christ. Finding that he is our identity. Finding that he is our strength. Finding him as our wisdom. That's our goal. Don't look to yourself. You won't find strength there. We all know that. You won't find all you need there. Yet everyone is on a quest. Everyone is on a quest to find themselves. We see that all around us. We see that where you can't critique someone for who they claim to be or who they are. And what they are is good. That's what the world says. What you are is good. It's interesting that way of reasoning doesn't extend to those who would say, no, what we are isn't what we are is fallen, totally fallen, unable to save ourselves. We are works in progress. We are those mightily weak. And in that truth, as the Bible says, in your weakness you find strength. And as James is talking about steadfastness and trials, that's what we saw last week in those first verses, we see now how we gain that. And it starts as a counselor. You, you know, you come to James, and here he is, and you sit on his, sit on his couch, you lay down, and what is he going to do as our counselor? What, is, what does he say? And what we expect from counselors today is just an open ear, and that's good to listen. One must listen, and yet James goes where God's word should go and tells the truth. You see, you might think James is something of a blunt counselor. What did he do to us as we come to his couch and lay down to to receive that counseling and that understanding? And what does he say? He says, rejoice in your trials and stand firm and be strong and bear up. And if you lack that, ask God for it. You see, James isn't a blunt counselor. He is a loving counselor, but giving the truth. Giving the truth that we need and giving the truth that we can't hide from. That we can't get around. That we can't just say, hey, you don't know what it's like for me. No, he says, I know what it's like. It is a trial. It is hard. And nowhere does he downplay that, but he, he gives the direction. We see that in our verses. We see what he, that it's not disconnected. This is classic in James. We'll see this time and again. Look at your Bibles. The last section had ended ended in verse 4 and said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then you see in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you see that term lack. It's connecting the two two ideas. And so there is a bit of a jumping to a different topic in the sense that now we've moved from just, here's the steadfast faith that trials produce, and so rejoice in that. And he's saying, if you want that, how do you get it? If you lack that, here's what you do. And he calls it wisdom. If you are lacking wisdom. And so what you see he's doing is he's joining terms together. He's showing that a steadfast, joyful faith comes in trials through wisdom. 
It is only God who can join those terms together. To join trials and suffering with joy. And how does he do that? Wisdom. That's our theme this morning. Only God's wisdom enables us to count joy in trials. Only God's wisdom enables us to count joy in trials. And so James says, ask him then. Ask him for it. If you lack, seek the epitome of wisdom in Christ. Seek the wisdom that is Christ. Seek him. We're going to see that today as we look at three points. First, lacking wisdom. And we'll be asking the question, what's the wisdom that we might lack? What's the wisdom that we need to search Our second point will be gaining wisdom, and that's just answering, how do we gain it? And third is hindering wisdom, or how we might hinder it. And as we think, I want us to keep that theme in mind, that only God's wisdom can blend joy with trials. Those are contradictory terms in our usual understanding, and yet, with God's wisdom, they are not. We began to see that last time, and we see that continuing on today. And so first, what is this wisdom, this wisdom we lack? We already know from what we looked at in Proverbs 3 several months ago that wisdom is not just simply knowledge. Wisdom is not just simply knowing something in our heads. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and applying it. It's it's knowledge applied. Or you could say it this way, it's knowledge that goes to work. Knowledge that goes to work. And when you say it that way, you might grasp, here's what what wisdom and biblical wisdom is. It isn't just that knowing the concept. It's that concept that changes your life. And that's what James is getting at here. James is saying, if you lack the wisdom to take what you've been told and what you know, and if you lack the ability to take that and apply it, ask God for it. And he's saying this because we all lack that in ourselves. He's saying this because you cannot gain biblical wisdom, the ability to know God's word, and then live it. You can't do that without his grace. You can't do that without him granting it. And so he says to his congregation, if you do lack, you are unable to remain steadfast in the faith, ask it, and seek the wisdom of God. Wisdom that goes to work. Knowledge that goes to work. And specifically here, what's that knowledge that goes to work? It's what God does in trials, produce joy, that gives us a steadfast or firm faith, a faith that bears it up. He said last week, a faith that bears the burden, it can carry it. That's what we seek through the wisdom of God. You know he doesn't direct you to just bear it better and try harder. He directs us to ask. He directs us to a request. We see that if we are called and we are called to have a steadfast faith, that's what the Lord tells us to do, then we are to seek it in Him. It's as if God's saying here about wisdom, if this doctrine is higher than what your minds can reach, ask of the Lord to illuminate you by His Spirit. And then James directs us to His character as a God who gives. It would be very pointless for us to ask of a God who doesn't give, whose nature and character was one to withhold, and who was that stingy God. But God isn't that way. He is a God who gives. And so we will gain endurance. We will gain maturity in the wisdom of God. What James has his mind in this wisdom is needed for our trials in life, so that we would be that moral, complete person, as you saw at the end of verse 4. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the steps to gain it. 
James even combines the meaning of these terms. If you look in the earlier verses, it seems as if James takes endurance and that steadfastness, and he also takes that maturity, and he he, he uses as a synonym for those wisdom. So endurance and maturity and wisdom for James are very similar. They're very closely tied. And if you have one, you will be led to, or you will have the other. If you have an enduring faith, that is a mature faith. And if you have a mature faith, it's a faith that endures. And if you have that enduring, mature faith, you are wise. You are taking God's word and living it. You're taking the word and knowledge that God gives and applying it to life. So what's wisdom, especially in this context? The ability to apply God's word to our circumstances, trust him, and thus rejoice in trials. James' point, if you lack it, ask it. If you lack it, ask it. That's what we're striving to do. That's the wisdom we need. It does us no good to hear God's word and to sit in worship services, to listen to sermons, to do whatever we will, and seek nothing in it. To not have that knowledge change our lives and to seek that in God. It does us no good to merely read without asking God, without, without petitioning him for a growth and understanding and steadfastness and maturity. So that's our first point, the wisdom that we lack. But how do we gain it? Gaining wisdom. I'm going to go through several terms here. We're going to look at humble prayer. That's the first way we gain it. We've been already been talking about that. Humble prayer. And then we'll see revelation. And then trust and recognition. Humble prayer, revelation, trust, and recognition. First, humble prayer. Why humble? Well, James is clearly showing in the intro, introducing it with if you lack it. To understand that you lack something is to have humility, to see in yourself that you lack it. And that's why the point of the introduction, the searching for yourself, to find yourself isn't the goal. The really, truly wise person knows that they lack, knows that they don't find it in themselves, and they will not find security and stability there. They're humble and they look elsewhere, specifically they look to God. They look to Christ. That all takes humility. And so you won't be able to endure trials with a steadfast, mature faith if you're proud. You can't. So closely tied to wisdom in the biblical idea of it is humility. You can't be a wise man, wise woman, and not be humble. Pride is a roadblock there. It's a a door that slams everything else closed. You can't see it, and so you must be humble. Humility that asks, that recognizes the lack. And so James would tell us, if we are striving to be that steadfast, maturing faith that can rejoice in the trial, well then be humble. And humbly ask, swallow your pride, see your weaknesses, and seek to... Answer those weaknesses in who Christ to appeal to him. That's the humble prayer that we confess. The second is the revelation, seeking the wisdom of God's word. This might seem like a subtle point. James doesn't necessarily tell them to go read their Bibles, but you can see what he's doing here in the very activity. James is giving them revelation. His very letter to them is the word of God. And so, subsumed under all this, sort of undergirding all of this, is the understanding that they're hearing the revelation of God. 
that they'll respond in humility to what James is saying. That is God's word proclaimed to them. And again, we cannot gain a steadfast, strong, joyful faith in trials without listening to God's word, his revelation, without hearing it. It takes this. James' audience wouldn't see it. We wouldn't see it if it weren't for God's word coming to us to expose it. So James says, if you lack this wisdom, seek it. And so that very application is hear the revelation of God. The next step to wisdom, then, is that humble prayer, that revelation, and then trust. We see this very clearly in the passage, to receive it in faith, or, as James says, without doubting. To ask and receive it without doubting. You see, getting wisdom and receiving it by faith takes that trust. Verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith. It must be a sincere faith. It must come from the longing of a believer's heart. It also must come from one who is truly a Christian and believer. But what it's asking, what that understanding of trust, is a continuing confidence in the identity and nature of our God. A continuing confidence in the identity and nature of our God. That's the trust. That's the faith by which we receive it. You see, again, the strength. Where is the strength flowing to the believer? Well, the confidence we have in the Lord. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in someone else. A trusting and a confidence in someone else. And so James says, receive it in that faith. Ask in that faith. Confidence that you will receive. You see, given the context here, the doubting that James is talking about is doubting the character of God. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but just to bring that up here, you have the difference in your trials between he who will doubt the character of God and he who will trust the character of God. And the difference between those two is the difference between remaining mature and steadfast and failing. And failing in the trial. And in fact, as James is directing it to those who are these double-minded, so failing that they show they don't have a real faith. They don't trust the character of God. They don't truly know him. You see, we must believe that God is who he claims to be. This is how we stand up to doubts, trusting in the character of God. And so we must receive it in faith. The next step to gaining this wisdom is recognition. Recognition, knowing God as the generous giver. So it's not just to trust in the character of God, it's to place that always before you, it's to recognize it. Because wisdom will only come through faith that trusts in the revelation of God and so recognizes God and knows him. As our text says, God gives generously to all without reproach. And so James is saying, recognize your Lord. Recognize him. He is the God that you're asking of who gives generously to all without reproach. And so to his audience, those suffering, being persecuted, don't doubt, trust in the God who gives. And that's a really hard concept for us to, not to grasp, but to actually have knowledge applied. That wisdom of the Lord, to take it and live it out. We might know it. We might know that all things work together for our good. But living it out and recognizing that every time we are faced with our trial or the dilemma, that's the hard part. 
that's the lacking we might have and the way we might need to gain in purity, wisdom, seeing that God is the giver, gives generously. You see, we too often think that God is someone who needs to be manipulated. That we have to continue to pray and pray and pray, and that's a practice we do. But we think that that's required, and that that's required so that we can force his hand, or that we've done enough service, so that he'll give it. That we have to put our time in, in prayer. We've got to wear the knees out on our pants as we're bowed down so that we can receive this thing we want. You've just got to keep pursuing him that way. That's not the character of God that James says here. The character of God is he who answers the prayer generously without reproach. Our God is not an Ebenezer Scrooge who holds on to his dimes and won't untie the the, the laces of his money pouch and not give of it until something's been done to force his hand. He's a God who responds to the requests of his children. He loves them. Our God is a generous God. What a truth. He's a giving God. When we doubt... When we need maturity and steadfast faith, we need to recognize that that is who God is. One who gives. He gives so much. We can become like frustrated children, challenging the love of their parents because they didn't receive the one thing they really wanted, as they say. You know, it's, it's the audacity that we have before God at times to be that child who yells at his parents because you didn't give me this PlayStation, that's all I wanted, that's all I ever wanted, and you didn't give it, you never give to me what, you, what I want, why don't you give me these things? And all the while, that reaction of that spoiled child is failing to realize that their parents are providing a home and food and clothing and love and protection and care and all a manifold of other giving. But because of that one thing, Because of that one thing that that child has idolized, now the parents aren't loving. And we can do that very easily because we fixate on that one thing in our life that we don't like. So God must not be loving. God must not care. That's not the case. Recognize the character of God which goes a step further, which we saw last time. What does God do when he has, in that illustration, what's he doing when he withholds the PlayStation? What's he doing when he doesn't answer that prayer? It's for our good. For the growth of our faith. And so, recognize God and remain steadfast in the affliction. Petitioning him in confidence, knowing that he does give, but recognizing that he will give exactly what we need and we ought to ask for no more than what God gives. And what God deems appropriate, that's what we need. So key to wisdom is for us to recognize our God who gives, and thus we don't doubt but trust. But I think this is hard, and I'm going to go to the the end. The best example of, of our doubt of the Lord, the best example of a trial we could go through, and that's death. We're facing death, the death of a loved one. That's the epitome We need to recognize something here, and what we need to recognize is that there will come a time in each one of our lives, in everyone's life here, if the Lord tarries, there will come a time when God's generous and giving character will be displayed to you in your death and dying. 
And that doesn't mean he's unfaithful. And that doesn't mean he isn't a giver, a generous giver of good gifts. And it doesn't mean that even the death and the process of dying is a bad thing. We need to accept that. If Christ tarries, we all face that we will. And when that epitome of a trial comes, then we say the Lord has failed. You see, we have it in our minds that unless we, re- we reach a ripe, healthy old age and die in our sleep without some kind of underlying condition and just pass on to the next life when we're kind of done with this one, unless it happens that way, well, then, then God is, isn't a fully good giver then. You see what that is? That is like the child with the PlayStation. That's trying to constrain the generous giver and say, unless you conform to this way of giving, unless you give me this gift, then that's not your character. You don't love. You see, this is not supposed to be a hard pill to swallow. It's supposed to take the reality that we are living this life in dying bodies. You who are young, sitting here, your body is decaying. You will seek to find the longevity of youth. You have it now. Many of us have this now. And death seems so far off. And that final trial seems so far off. But the reality is, we are in a sin-cursed world. We are in dying bodies. And this is not our home. And so we better see now that in any trial, and we should apply it to any trial, but using as the example the end result of death, Our God's character is proven. Question and answer 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this and answers it. It says, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? And that's a great question. It's a great question. We could reform it and say it in in, in a modern context. Since Christ died for me, why the death? Why the trials? Why does that still need to happen? If, if God's this giver, and if his character is one of love, and he does show this in the Bible, everything that the Bible says about him is true, why must we die? And they answer, Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. And I would apply that to death, to all trials. The trials that we face are not a payment for sin. They're not a payment for what you've done. Even if they are somewhat as a response to your choices, for a believer, when God allows us to experience the correct responses to our poor choices, that's not a punishment for sin. It's a corrective measure to help us grow it's the exact same thing a wise parent does when they discipline, when they, when they spank their child in love and they're correcting them, they're disciplining them. Well, that's not just a punishment, you did something wrong, it's something good. It's to steer away from that, it's to learn a lesson. So even our failures, God uses this. Even our failures, God's, God's characters are proven to be a loving, giving God. And the last point of application before we move on to our third point. You don't need to find something good in your actual trial or diagnosis or sickness to know God is good and doing good in it. You don't need to see the good. You don't need to take the cancer diagnosis. You don't need to take the 
the autoimmune disease. You don't need to take the death of a loved one and say, where can I see the good in it? Because that's not the faith that we have. The faith that we have says God knows the good in it. And if I can't see it, it's still there. By God's grace, often he does give it to us. gives us a great knowledge of what he's done. Often on our trials, we see the goodness clearly. We don't need it. Or we shouldn't need it. Enduring, steadfast faith that rejoices in trials knows it's there because he knows and recognizes the character of God. And so we stand. In Christ's strength, yes, but we stand in that truth. So we've seen, we've seen how we lack and the wisdom we lack. We've seen how we gain it. And now we see, third and finally, the, the way we might hinder this wisdom. The way we hinder wisdom. And we see already that it is in doubting. That's what the text says. How do we hinder this wisdom? It's being a doubter or, as James says, double-minded. Double-minded means your soul longs to have your own way, even if you somewhat want the the way of Christ, even if somewhat faith appeals to you, you will always be restless until the double soul becomes a unified soul for Christ. The double-minded man says this. This is a characteristic of what James is talking about. The double-minded man says, God loves me because things are going well. And then God doesn't love me when things are going poorly. And you rotate between that double-mindedness. God's proven if the good is happening, if what I want is happening, God's not. He's not loving when this isn't the way I want it. And it's the double-minded. And you are swaying between the faith, the faith that trusts, and an unbelief that says that's not who God is. God isn't good. And the constant ebb and flow and up and down are the waves that James says. The the picturing this as you go up and down, you're tossed to and fro. This is how you go as a double-minded man between faith and doubt, between faith and skepticism, unwilling to trust Christ until it conforms to your reality that you want. That's the double-minded. The doubting that James is speaking of here is not just simple uncertainty. We face that. We face uncertainty about what God is doing, and that doesn't mean we are a doubter, because here's the difference. Here's the difference between a believer and a doubter. A believer is one who doesn't know what God's doing, who experiences that pain, but what's never in question is the faith in God. They will endure it all the way to death, even the whole time not understanding it, even bearing that burden the whole time, but what they're not doing is saying, God must not be this way. God must not be loving. You see, their faith is firm even when they question. So don't hear this and think, oh, if I, if I have a doubt or if I have a question, then immediately I'm this doubter of James. Not necessarily. That's the case when you are taking the character of God and you say he's either good or he's bad, and you don't know. You're double-minded, and you're sitting on the fence. And where do you go? Where were you going to get off? Is it going to be on the side that God is faithful, or is it going to be on the side that he's not? You haven't made up your mind. You're indecisive. That's the double-minded man, unstable tossed back and forth. It's not the believer who trusts God even in the pain. That is the one who trusts. That is the one of a strong, enduring faith who doesn't bring into question God and yet doesn't have all the answers. You see, this is less of a Sunday school lesson that we might say, just ask for wisdom. This is less of that kind of lesson 
And it's more an urgent warning for the Christian community, severely stressing that through their persecution, they are, they are to see God and his character and remain strong. And that's what James is giving, an urgent warning to us that only God's wisdom enables us to count joy and trials and that if we doubt him, we can't stand it. We can't remain steadfast. As we conclude, what's the reason then for this strength? The reason for this undoubting, unrestricted faith is in who God is because of what he's given. How can we trust? How can we trust he who gives sincerely? How can we know that we will only receive good from God? You've actually got a down payment of it. You have, as a believer, a down payment, an understanding that God only gives to us what is good. And what's that down payment? It's what Christ has done. And it's the accompanying gift of the Spirit in your life. To know that you only receive good from God. How can we illustrate this? This is as if a billionaire in the world gave to you his, all of his wealth. If he gave all of his wealth to you, you don't doubt that he's a gracious giver. And then when you have a question from someone like, did that billionaire, does he really care about you? Does he really care about you because whatever? He, he, he didn't show up here to pick you up in his car, okay? I'm just throwing out a little example of what's happening here, we don't know. But what you see is he's given you everything. All that he can give, he's given. And so would there then be in our little trial over here a question like, well, is God truly this way? Is God truly only a good giver? Look to the gift. Romans gives us this very application. How do we know this? How can we stand in this? Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says in Romans, if he gave us his son, how can he withhold anything from us? He's, he's given the, the, the highest treasure. He's given all of himself. And so in your trials, where do we look? It isn't to find ourselves as we began this morning. It's not there. It's in the gift. It's already been given. And in that gift, where we place our gaze and recognize what's already been given, we're able to withstand, endure, and trust that God does love us. He knows what he's doing. Look what he's already given. That's the greatest assurance we could be given what God has already done. Character he has already portrayed. One pastor says this, Well, if God has demonstrated the love he had at Calvary, is there any reason to doubt or flinch during a trial? People of God, that is the wisdom that James is saying to seek here. It got really quiet right there, adding weight to that point. That's the wisdom of God. His son. Because of his son. Trusting in that. God has demonstrated the love he had at Calvary. Is there any reason to doubt or flinch during a trial and a diagnosis and a sickness and unemployment and pain and old age and boredom and anything else? 
there any reason to flinch? No, because only God's wisdom enables us to count joy in trials, and wisdom is the very knowledge of the gospel that we take and put to work into the wisdom of God to stand and trust him. Stand and trust his character as the generous giver. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you as the giver. We praise you as he who gives generously to all without reproach. We pray then for a strength to endure a mature faith, a steadfast faith that is mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And what is it to lack in nothing? It's to have all of you. It's to have all of Christ. It's to have the wisdom to apply that to every situation we face. How does the gift of Christ, how does the gift of the gospel affect this trial? It transforms it and changes it so that now the term suffering and trials can be joined with joy and strength. We know this is not in ourselves. We humbly ask it of you as those who lack those who look in themselves and see weakness and want to find ourselves holy in who you are. And we petitioned you as those who trust and not doubting that you will give this very request that no matter what happens in life, you will cause your saints to stand firm, to reach the true joys of relationship undimmed with you in heaven. That is our goal. And we know that for those who truly trust, it is a gift already given. We just wait to unwrap. We praise you for your love, for your greatness, for your character. We praise you for our Savior. In Jesus' name.